Well, happy Thanksgiving, almost. I don't know if you have traditions for Thanksgiving, though this year I'm not sure that traditions are going to happen that that much. We've got uh, things that we usually do that maybe not aren't going to get to happen, but as long as the pecan pie still shows up, yeah. life will go on. Yeah. That's really why I'm still here this week. <laughs> well, I read about a man in Charlotte, North Carolina, who purchased, he spent $15,000 on a case of very rare cigars. This is somebody that really likes cigars. And then he got them insured, get this, against fire. Within a month, he had smoked his entire uh, box of cigars and hadn't yet met one single premium payment. He filed for, uh, for his insurance, he filed a claim stating that he had lost the cigars, quote, in a series of small fires. <laughs> the insurance company refused to pay, of course, so that's crazy for the obvious reason that the man had smoked the cigars in the normal fashion. But the, the man sued the company, went to court, and believe it or not, won. And in delivering the ruling, the judge stated that since the man had a policy from the company in which they had warranted that the cigars were insurable and that the company had not uh, defined what it considered to be an unacceptable fire, he was obligated to compensate the insured for his loss. And rather than fight what was an obvious uh, I issue of injustice and go on and to appeal it and all that, the, the insurance company decided to go ahead and pay him his $15,000. Well, after the man cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested for 24 counts of arson. <laughs> With his own insurance claim and his testimony from the previous case, he was convicted and was sentenced to 24 consecutive one-year terms. I heard, it, I heard that story years ago, and I thought, you know, that sounds wonderful. In fact, it's so wonderful, I wonder if it's true. And I did, uh, you know, there's a little uh, Urban Legends website called Snopes, I think it is. You can look at snopes.com. You can figure out uh, whether or not people actually have time to do research on these urban legends. And bad news, it's not a true story. But wouldn't it be great if it was? <laughs> because it just scratches that itch of poetic justice in our lives. You know, somebody that, that does something wrong, the best movies are those movies that come back and, it, you know, they, they get what they got coming to them. We just love the sense of justice that sometimes occurs in life. Um, it's one thing, though, to have cigars or property destroyed, even if it's legitimate property. But it's another thing when sin destroys lives or when there is... Uh, a friend that betrays you, or if you go through a dismissal or a firing that's unfair, 
or if you go through a bitter divorce that leaves a lifetime of scars on your heart, the death of a child, these, these types of unjust things in life, there's really no poetic justice that can come about, is there? I mean, damage is done is done, and there's no going back. And the justice system of our world, even when it operates and does a great job, when it does, it can't, it can't bring back these losses that are permanent. We need a higher system of justice to take care of those, to bring a satisfaction to our hearts that uh, a simple justice system, system or cash can't cover. I want to ask you to turn to the book of Nahum. Book of Nahum. We are getting into some pretty obtuse books in our series here as we take a book, a single message from each of the books of the Bible. And if you were to look at the, the places in the scripture that are so seldom looked at, except when they're rushed through in the annual reading programs, the minor prophets are those oddball, you know, right field type players. We look at the minor prophets and think, what in the world does this have to do with me today? I mean, if all Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable, how in the world is Nahum profitable, especially when you read it? I mean, you, you begin it with some sense of anticipation and excitement, like, Lord, speak to me today. And then you get through with Nahum and you say, Lord, what in the world did that mean? Well, Nahum is about the wonderful poetic justice of God. And I don't know if you've noticed, but throughout the Scriptures, God loves poetic justice. Think about Joseph's brothers in Genesis appearing before the brother that they betrayed with hat in hand, realizing that God has flipped the table and now the one that they have abused is now standing there um, over them. Or think about uh, Haman in the book of Esther being hanged on his own gallows. That's one of my favorites. Haman is hanged on his own gallows. And then, of course, the Proverbs are just full of poetic justice where it talks about, you know, if you, if you uh, dig a pit, you'll fall in it. If you roll a stone, it'll roll back on you. God loves poetic justice. Well, as we make our way through, this, uh, through the Bible, Nahum offers us a wonderful picture of the poetic justice of God. And it does so in a way that, uh, that's a bit unusual. It's the book, it's the prophecy that Jonah wished he could have preached. You remember last week when we saw Jonah, uh, we saw Jonah go through to Nineveh and preach doom and gloom to Nineveh, but then Nineveh repents. And God relents and doesn't, doesn't toast Nineveh. Well, it's been a hundred years now since Jonah and Nahum comes along, and Nineveh or Assyria has backslidden into where they were previously, and God basically says, that's it. And Nahum preaches a message of Nineveh's final destruction. So let's look together. We're just going to look at the first chapter, because it gives a nice sense of the whole, and a good overview, in a sense, of the whole. So let's begin right in verse 1 and make our way down through this chapter and its relevant applications for us. Verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, 
the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkashite. Elkashite, whenever you see it at the end of something, usually it means like that's where they're from. Uh, I guess today, Frisconian, is that, uh, is that a, a real word? Frisconian, okay, means you're from Frisco. But in the Bible, you would have to say like Friskite or something because it means you're from Friscoite or, or you're, from, you're from Frisco. Well, Elkashite is from Elkosh. Unfortunately, we don't know where Elkosh is. You can look in a Bible atlas and there really should just be a big question mark there. But Nahum was the prophet from this unknown town of Elkosh. And Nahum gives this message, we're told, the oracle of Nineveh, meaning it's about Nineveh. This is the book that, that Jonah wished that he could have preached. Nahum comes on the scene giving this final message to the destruction of Nineveh. Verse 2, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Don't you just love that verse? You look at that verse and you think, you know, you don't see that a lot of times as a wall plaque at, uh, at Mardell and places like this where you, <laughs> where you go to buy ins inspiration. This is not going to be your screensaver um, when you're trying to be inspired by Scripture. And yet it's true. It, is, uh, it tells us, first of all, who God is, and then what he does because of who he is. We're told, first of all, that he's jealous. This is a word, this particular Hebrew word for jealous is only in reference to God. There are other times in the scriptures that uh, jealousy is, is used in uh, conjunction with people, but this particular word is only in reference to God, and it speaks of his passion, like for the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. There is this sense that not just that God has an ego problem, but that it is right to have no other gods but God, because he is the only God. And so for him to be a jealous God means he is jealous that people worship him, not because he is uh, conceited, but because it is right to do so. God is jealous for any kind of righteousness, and to, for him alone to be worshipped when that doesn't happen he is a jealous God. He is jealous that his people worship him, that he can have that intimate fellowship and relationship. And when it's threatened, either by his people or by foreigners, God steps in. We're told he is jealous and it is expressed, as it is here, with vengeance and wrath. And the goal there, typically, when it's related to his own people, is restoration. But when it's to his enemies, it is basically punishment. He is avenging and wrathful, therefore he takes vengeance and reserves wrath. God's attributes of who he is plays right out in what he does. Well, verse 3 sort of, you know, it's an incredible contrast to what we just read. And it's wonderful that it's right there side by side. We read, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Let's pause there and just look at that much so far. The Lord is slow to anger. 
What does that mean? Slow to anger. We've all known people who, have, who are quick to anger. And some, maybe that's a great place to begin. Uh, maybe it was a parent. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it was the past you. Maybe it's the present you. Maybe it was a, a policeman. Boy, I can never forget a time when a policeman was quick to anger. Uh, I had a uh, flat tire, and you know the little sub, the little spare tires that you put on there that aren't full size, but they're small, the little donut tires? Well, evidently, my speedometer was gauged to that particular wheel, and because of the small tire, it spun at a higher revolution, which told me that I was going faster than I really was. And so in order to go the speed limit, I was like crawling along like a little great-grandmother with all the cars passing me by. Well, this policeman pulls me over and just immediately lets me have it. And he, uh, he said, didn't you see all the people passing you by? I said, well, they always do that. <laughs> and that only made it worse. This, this policeman was quick to anger. Um, and if you, have, if you had parents that were that way, you know what it's like to live in a house of eggshells, where you're just walking on it. You just never know when it's going to happen. Our God is not like that. Our God is not a God that makes us live on eggshells. He is not a God that, if you, that is just waiting to find something wrong so that he can squash you. Instead of being quick to anger, we're told he is slow to anger. He is patient and gracious. We're told he is slow to anger and great in power. Boy, that seems like a contradiction, but it is, it is a- absolutely the same. Just think about what it's like as a parent. Now, you want to talk about being slow to anger. Let's talk about parenting. Parenting will test your patience. It will test how quick your anger is. And now all of a sudden you realize that, you, that if you're going to be slow to anger, you've got to have power. In, a, in other words, you've got to have a lot of self-restraint. You've got to be strong to be patient. I don't know if any of you saw the movie Schindler's List. It's a pretty disturbing movie in the sense of um, just the atrocities that were done uh, by the by the Nazis to the Jews. But there was one particular scene in which uh, Schindler, once he turned and became an advocate to rescue Jews, he sort of had an inroad with some of the head Nazis. And there's one particular Nazi leader who loved to kill Jews just randomly. He from his balcony, he'd just pull out his rifle and just start picking them off. And uh, Schindler came to him and he said, "You know, it, it, it's why do you do that?" And he says, "Well, you know, it gives me a sense of power." And Schindler said, "No, power is in pardoning. Power is in saying, being able to destroy, but choosing not to." And of course, he was playing the guy because he was trying to rescue the Jews. But what he was saying was also true. And it's reflected here in what Nahum says about the Lord, that God is slow to anger and he is great in power. And when we demonstrate that in our lives, when we have patience that goes beyond the limit, we are demonstrating a power that is of God, that reflects the character of God. 
He is a God that is slow to anger and great in power. But notice it also says, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we've got a God who is gracious and, 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 and loving, but we've also got a God who is just. Right there in the same verse, in fact, the first half of that verse, he is patient, powerful, but he is also just. How do you balance that? Well, a lot of times people balance that by just picking what they want out of it and scooting the rest under the rug, a lot like we do for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, Thanksgiving dinner, I can just see it now. There on the big spread is going to be pecan pie and green bean casserole. Now, some of you like green bean casserole, and that's okay. God bless you. But I don't like it. And I could give you stories, terrible stories, from my childhood about green bean casserole. So let's just say when it comes time to choose what goes on my plate, green bean casserole is not going to be there. But pecan pie will be there for sure. A lot of times we'll approach the scriptures and the Lord like we approach our Thanksgiving meals. That we will choose, we will choose what we want. And it's true not only at Thanksgiving, but anytime we go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, we choose what we want. And when we're done, we have a plate that reflects our choice. It doesn't reflect the buffet. It, it reflects what we want from it. It reflects us. And when we do that to the Lord, we pick apart the attributes of God that we want to be true in our lives, and the rest we just leave on the table. We have a God who is a freak not a God who is the true God of the Bible. We have a God made in our image and our likeness. And boy, I'll tell you, I don't want to get too far uh, off of the, the lectern and onto a soapbox, but this is what our country has become when it comes to God. Uh, you know, just this morning, I, I looked up the beginning of our Declaration of Independence because I just want to make sure it still said what it said. And it does. It talks about the, the natural creation and the fact that we have a God of nature. Uh, how, how is it referred to? As uh, nature's God and the God of nature. And that we, are, that we were able to declare our independence from Britain because we have been endowed by our creator, with certain unalienable rights. or In other words, it's built, baked into the system of being human that God has given us certain rights or certain expectations. Now, we could argue on the basis of Scripture whether those rights are truly rights, but what, but what the Declaration of, of uh, Independence is saying is absolutely true, that we have self-evident truths that are rooted in a Creator. Our whole nation was begun because of God, and yet, and if you were to ask those uh, founders, what God are we talking about? Even though many, if not most of those guys were deists and wouldn't necessarily share our theology, if you were to ask them what God it was, it was the God of the Bible. And this is why if you go to Washington, D.C. today, you'll see scripture chiseled on the granite of that place all over the city. And then ironically, you go to the Smithsonian and you see evolution everywhere which is an interesting contrast. But I guess the reason I've sort of jumped off into this uh, 
um, little soapboxes because we we do like to pick and choose the parts of God that we want. And our our country today is more and more getting away from the fact even that God is even part of the equation and redefining God as to the, a God in their image, a God that they want to be. God bless America. Who is that God? If it's the God of the Bible, okay, well, then it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I mean, how often do we get to talk about Jesus in, in public? God is nice and safe because it's undefinable, but Jesus, that is divisive. But it's in the same book. It's in the same book. So Nahum tells us straight, the Lord is slow to anger and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We've got to choke down the green bean casserole right along with the pecan pie. You get both right there in the same verse. God is the full meal deal. We don't pick and choose. He is gracious and yet he is also a God of vengeance and wrath for those who do not come to him. And there's no contradiction between his patience, his power, and his punishment. Let's read verse 3 again and continue with the verses that follow. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all its inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. We've got this amazing picture. Some of it we could look back and put historical accounts to. Others are just wonderful metaphors of the power of God, like rebuking the sea and making it dry. We can look at the Exodus. He dries up the rivers. We can look at the Jordan being parted. But these others, like Bashan and Carmel, Bashan is, the, is one of the most luscious parts of Israel even today. It's the Golan Heights. If you were to go to the Golan Heights today, you'll see cows everywhere there. It's just lush, it's green, it's beautiful, and it's very fertile. Uh, Carmel or Mount Carmel is the exact same way. It's a, it's a lush, beautiful part of Israel. Lebanon, of course, is known for its trees. So the best forests and pasture lands from the promised land, basically, he's saying, uh, Nahum says, withers before the, before the presence of God. Mountains quake because of him. Just the strongest, most powerful part of the world is nothing before our powerful God. This is how powerful he is. We're told he is great in power. What does that look like? We're given a picture here. It's as if the mountains become rubble in the presence of God, the very one who created the mountain. The same power that was used for creation, in other words, is used for judgment. God displays love to those who know him and judgment to those who don't. Look at verse 7. Once again, it turns the other direction. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Notice this is present tense. 
The Lord is good. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good. Even though there is great evil in the world, it does not diminish God's goodness in the least. Now, remember, Nineveh. This is spoken against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And as we talked about when we talked about Jonah, the Ninevites were brutal uh, people. You think about some of the worst um, people in history, even in recent history, 20th century, we can think of some horrible atrocities that have occurred in the world. And the Ninevites are right up there beside, uh, beside those nations. And God says, even though all this evil is there, the Lord is good. And his goodness is a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in that stronghold, those, those people who take refuge in him. You see, while the Lord provides punishment for sin, he also provides a safe place for those who will take refuge in him. And from our perspective, with the complete revelation of God's word, we know that we take refuge in him through the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the one through, who took the punishment of our sin when he died on the cross. The good news that we proclaim is the reason that we can have a refuge in God. We're told that he knows those. The, the word here for knows, the Hebrew word for knows, implies thoroughly knowing. He, and he completely knows us, and he continually knows us. He knows our hearts. He recognizes us. He takes notice of us. And this leads us to our first application, or our first principle from the text. And it's simply this. Those who seek the Lord, for those who seek the Lord, he remains a refuge in the troubles of life. For those who seek the Lord, he remains a refuge in the troubles of life. If you will regularly take shelter in your relationship with God, it's a refuge. But boy, that's a daily thing, isn't it? That's not something you just do every Sunday, or certainly not Christmas and Easter. But we take a refuge in the Lord every single day. I remember one time I was really struggling with some issue. I don't even remember what the issue was. Um, there was a big challenge. And Kathy told me, my wife Kathy, she says, Wayne, just hide in your relationship with God and let everything else fall into place. And I thought, wow, what a wise woman. Just hide in your relationship with God and let everything else fall into place. Because you know it will. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll all turn out like we want it to turn out, but it will turn out because our God is almighty and powerful. And if we, like Nahum says, if we take refuge in him, he is our stronghold. Stronghold. What's a stronghold? Um, we could imagine, but basically the word basically means like a, a, a shelter, like a fort, like a place in the midst of battle. You run to a stronghold to be protected. He is our refuge, we're told in verse 7, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Sometimes when we read books or go to movies, which we've already seen, you know, there are some movies that you don't mind watching over and over. 
like usually at Christmas, you've got your traditions of It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street and all these other great Christmas movies that have terrible theology, but we love watching them, don't we? You don't want to get your theology of angels from It's a Wonderful Life, but uh, boy, it does have some great lessons in it, doesn't it? And we don't mind watching it again, even though we know how it's going to end. It's just this reminder of the process. Same is true of, uh, of other movies, you know, action movies, where when you, the first time you watched it, you weren't sure if the good guy was going to win or the bad guy was going to win. And I think I, I may have told you a couple of years ago, I, uh, my dad and I went and saw a, a um, Sylvester Stallone movie at the theater. And this was back when, you know, you didn't have computers and all that jazz. You actually just went to the theater and, and walked in. And we walked in think, knowing that we had arrived or thinking that we had arrived a little late. And we, the movie was going. We walked in and thought, okay, well, we'll just, you know, stay and watch the beginning of it. Walk in. We sit down. And, you know, Stallone comes around the corner and shoots the bad guy. Movie's over. And the credits roll. We walked in and saw the last five minutes of the movie. And we knew exactly how it was going to end. So we stayed and we watched the whole thing again, knowing with every tense scene, we know how this is going to end. You know, good guy wins, bad guy loses. There's no surprise coming. But what was neat was being able to, to watch how it unfolded. Our Christian life is like that. And we're told in Nahum that the life of the believer in God is like that. The end is certain. There's no question how it ends. The question is how we get there. And for some of us, that's the fear, too. I just, who was it that said, I don't mind dying? I just don't want it to hurt so bad. That's our fear. But the good news is we know how it's going to end, and so we can cling to the goodness of God regardless. We can hide in our relationship with God and let everything else fall in place. Because it will. It will fall in place. And sometimes we need that reminder. Whatever it is that you are struggling with, right now. And I know you are because it's a life of faith we live. Every day there's something to trust God for. Whatever it is that you're struggling with right now, put it in the context of what Nahum is teaching us, in fact, what the whole Bible teaches us. And that is that if you take refuge in the Lord and you trust in the Lord with all your heart, then you can be at peace. You can be at peace with that family member that's not yet come to Christ. You can be at peace with an unknown future financially. You can be at peace with the fact that our country may be sliding down to a, a pagan, uh, atheistic worldview. We can be at peace with all of it because our God is in control. This is the same God that the mountains crumble before. This is the same God who was all-powerful and made the, word, the world with a word, who will destroy the world with a word and who will recreate it again. This is our powerful God. He is uh, he's the one we take refuge in. So even though that there is a veil over much of our future, there is a bit of revelation that's also given to us that it's all going to be okay at the end. Um, our justice systems today are sometimes suspect. And if you read the watch the news right now, it's like, if that's our 
complete view of justice, then we got a long, we're in bad shape. That maybe that's just a nice way to say it. But I don't know if you've ever served on a jury. I've served on at least two, maybe three juries. I can't remember. But um, I was in the process and the nitty-gritty of all the details of the case, and it ended up right. And so if you've been on a jury, maybe you've experienced that too. But, but going through the process of the justice system and participating in it as it's set up gives you a greater confidence that, you know what, even with all that's going wrong, there is still God's using government uh, to bring about good in the world. And, it, and it's happening. I've witnessed it. And maybe you have as well. I've also witnessed a lot of corruption, but that doesn't negate the good that's truly there. God's justice one day will know will be meted out perfectly and completely. Which takes us to verse 8. He says, but, notice the contrast, those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight, meaning Nineveh, and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. What a picture. The enemy is fleeing and God pursues them even into the darkness. Kind of a, an eerie thought that this is the justice of our God. So here's the second principle. The second principle is for those who refuse the Lord's, re Lord's refuge, he will distribute impartial condemnation. For those who refuse the Lord's refuge, he will distribute impartial condemnation. The sad part is they don't have to refuse the Lord's refuge. He's offering it to any who will simply believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But if that isn't taken, he will pursue his enemies into darkness. He will distribute impartial condemnation. I remember reading years ago about a uh, television show, uh, a Norwegian television show of all things. It was only on for, I think, a couple of seasons, but it was called The Bar, or at least that's how we translate it. I'm not sure. It was like, I forget what the Norwegian word for it was. But anyway, it basically followed 10 people that worked around the clock in this bar, and then, the, then it also followed them uh, as they lived in their apartment above the bar. So they had cameras, you know, all over this place in the bar and in the apartment, and it was sort of this reality show of following these people around, which I guess was interesting to some people, but not enough because it was only on for two seasons. But anyway, they had this uh, Norwegian show called The Bar, and, while, and one day while the stars were at work downstairs in the bar, a burglar broke in to the apartment with all the cameras up there filming. And so he's up there, you know, trying to rob the place. Well, the producers see this guy breaking in, and they go in and they stop him. And, of course, he denied it. Oh, no, you know, I, I wasn't doing anything. And then they pointed the fact that there are 18 cameras pointing at him, filming exactly what he did. And the, the, the show decided not to press charges because some of the participants said that they, they just felt sorry for the guy because he was either so unlucky or so stupid. But I read that and thought, you know, none of us are going to be able to stand before the Lord one day, or I should say us, those of us, none who have not placed their faith in Christ, and when God brings a condemnation, are going to be saying, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not guilty. 
all God's got to do is say, roll tape. Because God sees it all. And thankfully, because of Christ, he forgives all. He pardons by virtue of faith in him. So for those of us who have trusted Christ, we still have to deal with the injustice of the here and now, don't we? And dealing with it doesn't mean that we just roll over. I mean, waiting for God's justice in the end doesn't mean we just kind of roll over now and show our bellies. Turning the other cheek doesn't mean that we never try to pursue justice, that we never avail ourselves of the legal system, that we don't try to make right right here and now. But what it does mean is when we try to make right right and it isn't made right, that we, we, we've got nowhere to go. We can still trust that the Lord has it all on tape and one day can bring about justice. We can pursue the logical and the legal path, but sometimes God's methods in our lives are not logical and sometimes they're not legal. Think about throughout the scriptures, the, the illegal things that God has used to bring about his great grand plan, not the least of which was the trials of Jesus, all six of which were illegal. Three uh, secular and three religious trials, every one of them was a farce of justice. And yet God worked in spite of that to bring about the greatest act of grace and justice in all humanity. Can he not do the same in our lives? When we suffer injustice that's horrible, he can do it. He can do it. We have to trust him, though, and we have to take refuge in our relationship with God and trust that he's going to make it all right in his time. Well, the verses that follow here in the end of chapter 1 go back and forth between condemnation of Assyria and encouragement for Judah. But let's look at the very last verse here, verse 15, and end on the positive note of encouragement for Judah. Look at verse 15. The Lord says, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. I love this as a summary. In fact, you may have a, a note in your margin there as a cross-reference to Isaiah 52 and Romans chapter 10. Isaiah says a very similar thing, um, and Paul just quotes Isaiah in Romans 10. But Isaiah is saying in chapter 52, and if you think about Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52 is pointing to the coming Messiah and the good news that Jesus is going to make it all right when he comes. And this is Paul's point as well in Romans 10. But this is a promise to Judah of the coming peace that will provide, that God will provide them. And it is a promise also to us by principle. We aren't Judah, but we get to enjoy the same blessing that Judah enjoys. That never again will the wicked one pass through us. There's going to come a day, and what a great day it'll be, when we never have to worry about injustice again. All we've got to do is just persevere and get there. And it won't be long. Well, before we close, I'd like us to turn, we can leave Nahum and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're talking about taking refuge in God. Hebrews chapter 6 
puts the cookies on the bottom shelf for us and makes it very, very practical. Someone once said that the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Just because justice hasn't come about now doesn't mean it's not going to. Um, The New Testament says that wrath is stored up for the day of condemnation. Nahum gives us comfort. So let's look together at uh, Hebrews 6. Look down at verse 17. Hebrews 6, verse 17. Uh, If you look at the the greater context here, it's speaking of uh, Melchizedek. It's even speaking of those who fall away. But verse 17 speaks to those of us who are true believers in the Lord and says this, In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Aren't those great verses? We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope. Imagine that. Just picture that. That the hope of the future is right there in front of you and you take hold of it. Like you would an anchor in a storm. And it is a beautiful picture. Our hope for the future is is an anchor in, in the storms of our lives. The principles that we've gleaned here from Nahum, let me just repeat them before we pray. For those who seek the Lord, he remains a refuge in the troubles of life. And for those who refuse the Lord's refuge, he will distribute impartial condemnation. How essential that we cling to the hope set before us, this hope that is an anchor of the soul. Let's pray. Our Father, how often have we opened our Bibles to these minor prophets and seen a message of such doom and gloom on an era that is long gone. It's almost as if the book is done, that its purposes are over because the people it spoke to no longer living The cultures no longer even exist. The mighty nation of Assyria is just a hill of weeds. And yet the truth from this text lives on and penetrates our hearts even today with encouragement. Encouragement for those of us who have taken refuge in our Lord Jesus Christ, that though we live in a day and age that doesn't honor him, by and large, and certainly not in a public and uh, national way, that we can still honor him in our hearts and in our gatherings, and that we can cling to the hope like an anchor, knowing that one day you will bring about justice that is perfect and that will be perfectly satisfied in our lives, not only on a national scale, 
but also on a personal scale for all the personal injustices that we have endured that somehow this life is not yet set right. And Father, for those who have not yet placed their faith in our Lord Jesus, we pray for them that you might not have to chase them into the darkness, that instead that you would be gracious and that you would uh, open their eyes to the truth, be it a family member, be it a governmental official, be it a particular political party, or be it a foreign nation that gives full acclaim to a different God altogether. We ask that you would be merciful, that the Spirit of God would make his way across the earth in grace, and that many people, perhaps even this season, would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.